This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. John 16, we'll be looking tonight at the first 15 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. These things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, by this helper who was promised to us, you'd prepare our hearts to receive this word, to be comforted by it, to have the hope and the peace that passes all understanding from these words that our Savior gives us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, the world has changed a lot, even just this century, the 21st century, since the year 2000. Just last week, we passed the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. It was an event that in many ways remade the world, brought on a new wave of global warfare, brought a much greater emphasis on security and concerns about security, Many things in the world are different as a result of that event that continue even to this day. 
And that's not the only thing that has changed. In roughly the same period of time, things like homosexuality and the other LGBT issues have gone from relatively fringe issues to the center of political and social and cultural emphasis. The world has become more secular. In the 1990s, it was still relatively socially and culturally acceptable in most places to be a Christian. Now, in much of our society, it is not. If you are openly a Christian, you will be criticized, you will be vilified. In many ways, our nation and our world have undergone a revolution. The world is no longer nearly so tolerable to the Christian faith, to God's law, or to any other thing that might be too overly linked to our Christian past. But these things don't merely exist in a vacuum. As the world proceeds along this course, the result is a world that is scarier in many more ways. It is more chaotic. It is less orderly, more lawless than it was even just a few decades ago. I'm part of the last generation that kind of remembers, for instance, what life was like before 9-11 and all the changes that it brought. And the chaos is ever accelerating. We've gone from public debates over whether or not things like homosexuality and gay marriage are permissible at all to demands that transgenderism be promoted in public schools at all costs. Just as one example. And in many ways, the Christianity, the history and heritage of this country where Christianity is such a part, that's now often vilified. That's a relic of the past we need to discard. It's bigoted. It's backwards. It's out of touch. And when we look at all these things around us, we can become afraid. But our Lord Jesus knew that his people, both in the near term from when he was on the earth and in the long term, would face chaos and turmoil in the world. We come tonight to John chapter 16. We are nearing the end of Jesus' upper room discourse, where Jesus seeks to comfort his people, comfort his disciples in the face of coming difficulties. It was a text very real and relevant for his disciples that night, and it is very relevant to us even now. We will look at Jesus' words of comfort in chaos tonight in three points. First, we see suffering in verses 1 through 4. Christians will be persecuted. Christians are told by their Lord that they will suffer. Jesus knows this. He wants to prepare his disciples for this reality. And second, we see sorrow in verses 5 through 11. The disciples are sad because on top of these coming troubles, their Lord Jesus will be absent from them. But Jesus will provide additional help and support. And then third, we see speaking in verses 12 through 15, that help and support will include the revelation of God's truth in more plain and clear ways. So we have suffering, sadness, and speaking. Those are our three points for this evening. First, we look at suffering in verses 1 through 4. Jesus introduces this section by saying that he has spoken what he has spoken in this discourse so that his disciples should not be made to stumble. 
Now, the word here for being made to stumble is from the Greek, skandalizo. You might hear that word and think it sounds familiar. It is the word from which we get scandal or scandalize. It's actually often associated in its ancient use with traps, things that you might step on like a snare or you could think of maybe like a bear trap, you know, that you step on and it snaps shut and you are trapped. It is a more, this word describes a more active and destructive act than stumbling like we might think where maybe you're wandering around in your house at night trying to find the bathroom or something and you trip on something. No, this is active. Someone is working to cause the stumbling. Of course, this stumbling can come from multiple sources. The world, the flesh, the devil. In this text, Jesus particularly turns to the stumbling that can be caused by the world and its attacks, its persecutions of the church. So that we might not be trapped, so that we might not be overtaken and destroyed, Jesus has given us these words. In verse 2, Jesus begins to unpack the specifics. First, he speaks of his disciples being put out of the synagogues. Now, we have discussed before in John the implications of being put out of the synagogue, particularly back in chapter 9 when Jesus healed a man born blind who was then put out of the synagogue for merely acknowledging that it was Jesus that healed him. We might think at first glance that a Christian being put out of the Jewish synagogue wouldn't be such a big deal, but it is. In the first century in the Roman Empire, there was very little of life that could be considered secular. In fact, that's how most of the world has been for most of its history until very recently. Religious assemblies not only conducted worship, but in Rome, they conducted much of social and economic and even political life. So in the Roman Empire, most businessmen, they belonged to trade guilds. They were essentially unions. They learned and practiced their trades in them. So you would have a guild of builders or a guild of metal workers or a guild of traders or of sailors and so forth. Now the issue with these guilds was that each guild had its own gods and would have to worship them as a part of their meetings and business. And then on top of this, all of these groups were expected to pinch their incense to offer sacrifices to Caesar to engage in the worship of the emperor. And there was one notable exception, and that was Judaism. It was a lone tolerated group of religious dissenters in the Roman Empire. They would not worship the emperor, and the Romans were willing to tolerate them as such. And so this meant for the Jews, existing apart from the guilds and apart from this state emperor worship, not only their religious life, but also a lot of their economic and social life ran through the synagogues. The Jews primarily conducted their business among other Jews around the worship of God. So to lose access to the synagogue would be to lose access to many protections and benefits beyond those that were merely religious. Furthermore, it was also common for those put out of the synagogue to be shunned by their families. Being put out of the synagogue would carry a high price. It wasn't something that anyone would look forward to doing. 
But Jesus here warns his disciples that that day is coming. They won't actively seek it. Much of the early church will in fact grow by the preaching of Christ in the synagogues, but eventually that break from Judaism will be made decisively and definitively. But there were even more difficult realities ahead than being put out of the synagogues. Jesus next speaks that people will begin to kill Christians for their faith, and they will believe that they are serving God when they do it. We don't have to wait long in history to see that start to happen. In the book of Acts, the blood of the martyrs begins to be spilled with Stephen, who is stoned by the Jews, who believe that they are protecting the true religion by putting down this new Christian sect. Saul, later known as Paul, was there. He gave consent to the stoning of Stephen. And that was basically Saul's responsibility and something he did before his conversion. He went around as something of an inquisitor, finding and arresting and purging Christians from the Jewish faith and even killing them. Not all of such persecutors would convert like Saul. In fact, eventually for a time, the Roman Empire itself would undertake state-sanctioned persecution of Christians, believing them to be seditious, believing them to be atheists, because they only worshipped one god. They wouldn't worship the emperors and all the old gods. And this didn't stop when the Roman Empire decided to tolerate Christianity. Many other martyrs have been made as they have borne witness to the gospel around the world and through history. And many were killed by those who thought themselves serving God. How many of our Reformed forefathers died at the hands of the Roman Catholics for seeking to reform and purify the church? I mentioned we just passed the anniversary of 9-11, but a lesser-known anniversary we passed a few weeks ago was the anniversary of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of 1572, where in France as many as 30,000 French Protestants, known as Huguenots, were murdered by Roman Catholic supporters. Even today, in places like North Korea, China, the Muslim bloc, Christians are persecuted and killed and imprisoned for their faith. And given recent developments in America and the West, we have to wonder how much longer we can worship and preach Christ with the relative security and stability we have seen. Now, I don't mention all of this to scare you. Nor did Jesus mention the reality of persecution and martyrdom that might come to cause fear in his disciples. Quite the opposite, he mentioned it to comfort them. He wants them to know that even as they suffer, because they will suffer, they will suffer with hope, with the true knowledge of him and his salvation. In verse 3, Jesus says that the persecutors persecute because though they would claim to be doing God's work somehow, they do it because they do not know God, because they do not know Christ. What do I say here so often as we've been working through John? No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. 
Jesus wants his disciples to remember in their darkest days of suffering and sorrow and persecution that he is on their side and God is on their side. Friends, be comforted. In your darkest of days, when you suffer righteously, the Lord is on your side. But this coming difficulty of persecution is not the only reality that the disciples must face. This brings us to our second point. After suffering, we come to sadness in verses 5 through 11. Jesus' disciples are sad. They are filled with sorrow. But why? Is it because of the news of this coming suffering and persecution? Maybe somewhat. But mainly the sorrow comes as Jesus has revealed to them that he is leaving. He will depart. He will go for a few days into death, but he is looking ultimately beyond that and beyond his resurrection to his ascension where he will bodily leave this earth behind until he returns. They were asking Jesus where he was going. Now he has told them. Now he has made it clear. He is going to the Father. He is going to prepare a place for them, but they will not quickly share in those blessings. There is much of the toil and sorrow of life ahead, much of history ahead that will go on without Jesus being bodily present. But Jesus wants his disciples to be encouraged even in this. Though he is leaving, he is not leaving his people alone. We've already seen many times in this upper room discourse how Jesus reminded his disciples that he will send the Holy Spirit to them. And with this Holy Spirit will come many great benefits and blessings. The ability to know and understand what Jesus has taught them. Power from on high to do greater works than even Jesus himself did. The very indwelling presence of God. In verse 7, Jesus now tells them that not only will it be okay when he departs, it will be better. Because when Jesus departs, he will send the Holy Spirit to his disciples to fill them and empower them and teach them. And Jesus describes some of the things that the Spirit will do when he comes. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness. I've talked before, as we've worked through the Upper Room Discourse, about the Spirit's work of illumination to grant people the ability to understand God's word and God's truth. We see this in the pattern of apostolic preaching and evangelism. So in the book of Acts, once the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon where he very clearly puts the blame for Jesus' death on the crowd gathered in Jerusalem for that Jewish feast. And he also tells them how their scriptures, how the Old Testament points clearly to Jesus. And they listen and believe. They are cut to the heart, the crowd is. They know their sin and their guilt. They repent and trust Jesus, and 3,000 were added to the church on the very first day. This sort of thing occurs many other times in the book. The Holy Spirit allows the law and the gospel to be preached and to be effective in the hearts of the hearers whom God has chosen for salvation. 
But the Holy Spirit will also come as a judgment on those whom God has not chosen. Those who do not believe will be said to be those who resist the Holy Spirit. Those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Those who commit the sin against the Holy Spirit that leads to death. This struggle, this separation between the city of God and the city of man that is worked out in time and space and history is reflective of the cosmic battle between God and Satan. The Spirit will come in righteousness to God's people and in judgment to the world and in judgment on the ruler of this world, who is the devil. Satan will be judged alongside those who follow him, which is anyone who rejects Christ. For them, the Holy Spirit is a curse, a judgment. But for God's people, the Spirit is the sweetest of blessings, God continuing to dwell with us and in us until Christ returns. Now we have seen this cosmic struggle play out in the world. The preaching of the gospel was made effectual in the hearts of some such that they receive it and are saved. But many resist and many reject because apart from the saving grace of God, man in his sin and rebellion can only resist and reject. And our second point connects to our first. Many of those who resist and reject the Holy Spirit's work do not merely do so passively, they do so actively. Not only do they not believe, but they hate and persecute those who do. And yet, though the Holy Spirit will further execute this judgment that provokes conflict and persecution, it remains to our advantage that the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus makes it clear that despite all of the struggles and sorrows and hardships that are to come in this age of the Holy Spirit, this age of the church, this age of the preaching of the gospel, it is better that he depart so that the Holy Spirit may come. When Jesus was on the earth, his work, his reach was relatively limited to where he was, to who he taught and spoke to. And he was resisted and persecuted. But in the age of the Holy Spirit, the gospel goes forth and the church is built not through one who has come preaching the word of God, but thousands, millions who empowered by this spirit preach with power and authority and conviction of Christ and his word. This is why it is better that Jesus go and the spirit come. Because God's Spirit indwells the hearts of all believers everywhere. And the work has gone on to the ends of the earth, even despite all the persecution and resistance that his enemies can muster. So Jesus has made it clear that the Spirit will come to the advantage of the disciples, and he will come in righteousness and judgment for salvation and condemnation. But this reality is personalized in our final point this evening. After suffering and sadness, we come to speaking in verses 12 through 15. Jesus says in verse 12 that he still has many things to say to the disciples, but they cannot bear them now. Jesus has been with them now for a few years. He has taught them much publicly and privately. And yet he has not yet taught them everything which they need to know. 
And furthermore, even what he has taught them, they have not fully and properly understood. We've seen many instances as we've gone through John where Jesus says something, teaches something, does something, and the disciples don't understand it. They don't understand it because they don't yet have this illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to understand God's truth and what it means. But there is coming a day where they will receive the Holy Spirit who will continue to teach them. He will open up their minds and their hearts to understand what they have already seen from Jesus and the scriptures. He will inspire them to write the remaining books of the New Testament, which will instruct and teach the church in this world for as long as this world continues. We also see in Jesus' words both the unity but also the priority of the persons of the Trinity. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own authority. Now, this does not mean that the Holy Spirit has a will independent of or contrary to the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit will speak what is the will of the triune God in unity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together testify of the same things. Just as Jesus, as the Son of God, has borne testimony of his Father, the Spirit will testify and teach the truth of the Father and the Son, for God is one. The Spirit will tell them of things to come. The Spirit will give prophecy. Now, prophecy has ceased as an ordinary gifting and function of the church, but we still have in Scripture prophecies of things yet to come in our age things at the end of our age, and things of the age to come. And most of all, the Spirit will glorify Christ and declare the truth of Christ to the disciples and continuing through the work of the church to all peoples and nations. Jesus will not be with them to teach them any longer, but the Spirit will teach them the remaining things and also bring to mind and illuminate the things they have already seen and heard all for the glory of God and the glory of Christ. What the Father has and is given to the Son is also given to the Holy Spirit, so that the Spirit may testify them to us, so that we might hear and believe and be saved, and so others might hear and be hardened in judgment. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this age. It is good to know, it is very comforting to know, that though Christ physically has left us, he has left this world, he has not left us alone. He has left his word and his spirit with us, so that we might know the truth concerning him, the truth concerning our salvation, and also so that we might know that even as we face this persecution and opposition in the world, Nothing strange and unexpected is happening. The word that comes to God's people in salvation comes to others in judgment. A cosmic conflict rages between God and the devil, the city of God and the city of man. We can be comforted by Jesus' words here because we can know with certainty that even as the nations rage, and the world hates us and opposes us and may even come to persecute us, the Lord is on our side. And his spirit lives with us 
and in us and will comfort and preserve us and speak the truth to us even as we face this opposition, even if we join the martyrs who have gone before. So do you have this comfort tonight? Jesus Christ has left his word and spirit even as he has departed into heaven. The word of the gospel is again proclaimed. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. He has made a full and final atonement in his perfect life and suffering and death so that his people might be reconciled to God. By his Holy Spirit, believers may be comforted. They may have their hearts and minds illuminated so they might understand the truth of God in his word. Does this word come to you tonight in salvation or in judgment? Perhaps you hear it tonight and the Spirit has for the first time opened up your heart and mind to receive it. If so, the call of the gospel is to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. But if you do not believe, the Word and the Spirit come to you in judgment. You belong to the ruler of this world, Satan, and if you persist in your rebellion against Christ, you will be cast out. May we all be found in Christ. May we all know the truth of his word, and may we all have the comfort of his Holy Spirit today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. These words of hope, these words of comfort, that even as the world opposes us and hates us, even as a war rages between you and the devil, and between the city of God and the city of man, we pray that you would comfort your people, that you would preserve them unto everlasting life, that you would continue to shine forth your gospel and your glory and the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.